as our gift to you. So once again, we are reading from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted by the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This is God's word. Thank you, Betsy. I'm glad Betsy got an easy passage to read tonight. She's had some hard ones in the months past, so that was God's love on her. Um, So for those of you who are new joining us for the first time tonight, uh, we are taking the next couple months to walk through 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. We're looking at the gospel in the life of David. And uh, so King David's life is pretty remarkable, both the highs and the lows of it, and we'll get to look at that in the weeks ahead. There's actually going to be, just spoiler, a number of texts that we'll look at before we actually get to David, Uh, but all that stuff matters. And what we've been seeing over the last couple weeks is David's life did not begin with him, but it began with a woman named Hannah. And so we've looked at her life uh, the last two weeks. We're going to take one final week to look at her life, and then next week the text is going to transition to the life of her son Samuel. Uh, so, So we'll look at that. And what we did last week was we looked at Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 to ten, uh, verses one to 10, and we looked at it panoramically. We looked at the main theme of the prayer, which is that God is for the little people. Uh, but what we're going to do tonight is just drill down on the first two verses. And here's why. The more I was looking at Hannah's life, the more I was looking at Hannah's prayer, uh, something struck me that uh, troubled me and convicted me. And this isn't preacher rhetoric, I'm being real with you guys, Um, it hit me really hard. And what hit me was, so Hannah's in a horrible situation, right? So we looked at this two weeks ago, you can go listen to it if you missed it, but the essence of it is every voice in Hannah's culture, uh, the voice inside Hannah's head, every voice she was listening to was essentially saying, you are so defective that you don't even qualify to be a human being. Like, there's something impure in the fact of your very existence. And yet, Hannah has legitimate joy in the Lord. Okay, it's not just saccharine or she's not just putting on a face. She's grounded in the Lord. And why is this? Because so you and I, I I don't think any of us in here are in a situation as bad as Hannah's. But yet, I think everyone in here, um, including me, get a lot more anxious than Hannah got. Uh, gets a lot more insecure than Hannah became. And why is this? And what I think the secret is, is in verse 2, where she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is none besides you. So that's another way of saying there is none like him. And so here's, here's what I realized. Um, and I, I'll admit I apologize to you guys, even as your pastor, because I feel like this isn't something that I've meditated on enough. And I don't think it's something that I've pointed you guys to as much as we need to be pointed to. And that's the fact that there's none like him. And here's why this matters. Because so Hannah and you and I, we worship the same God. It's the same God. So why was Hannah able to act in the way that she did? And I, th- I think it's because you and I tend to, she saw a very clear vision of who God is. Whereas you and I tend to distort who God is, right? So we're looking at him through fuzzy glasses. And I think one of the main ways we, dis- we distort God is we make him a small God. So when you think about God, when you pray to God, he's 
basically in your heart of hearts just a slightly bigger version of you. Okay, so he's, he's slightly more forgiving. He's slightly more loving. He's slightly less bitter. He's slightly more powerful. Okay, that, that's not a compelling God. Okay, but God's on a, a whole different order of reality. He's far more compelling than the God we often make him to be. Because a God who's just a bigger version of you, who's just a bigger version of me, isn't very compelling. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, that God, he, he's not worth praying to. Or certainly not worth taking a lot of time to pray to. You've got other things to do. Right? He's not worth giving your life to. He's not powerful enough to save your friends or, or family members who don't know Jesus. Okay? That, that, that's a small God. But, but a big God, a limitless God, now that God's compelling. And that God, especially when you realize like Hannah did, that this matchless, rivalless God has given everything to be with you because he desires you? Now that changes everything. And so what we're going to do, and for just the rest of our time tonight, and this is, isn't typically how a lot of sermons work. I don't know if they, they should be more, but all, all we're going to do is just drill down on what Hannah said. There's none besides you. And we're just going to spend the remaining 20 minutes or so in doxology. Okay, so doxology, doxology means praise. And here's why we're going to do it, because I think your problem and my problem isn't that you don't have enough knowledge, right? Or your, your fundamental problem isn't that you continue to, you don't exercise enough willpower, right, when you fall into self-absorption. I think your fundamental issue is that there's not enough awe in your life. Right, because awe is what changes you, right? Like when you, when you look at a breathtaking landscape, when you are at a concert that stirs your blood with its, mu- with its music, when you're looking at a breathtaking piece of art, right, there's, there's something about awe, and a lot of people have written about this, where it takes you out of yourself, right? it makes you a lot less individualistic, a lot less self-absorbed. And this is why God made you. Right? So let, let's be very clear. God did not make you just to, once you receive Jesus, to live in, like, sin management for the rest of your life. I think a lot of Christians behave this way. It's like, okay, I'm trusting in Jesus. Now I have to stop doing the bad things. I have to start doing the good things. And, yes, when, when Jesus saves you, does that change how you live? Absolutely. But at its heart, God didn't save you to just manage your sin. He, he, he saved you and called you to stand in awe of him and be so electrified by him that it changes everything about who you are. And so we're just going to pull out a few attributes about God uh, that lead us to praise him. And my hope is by God's spirit working through his word and a very limited human up here, we can get just a slightly clearer vision of who this God is and be changed the fact that this great, limitless, rivalrous, rivalrous God wants a love relationship with you. Okay? So we'll put a few attributes, and the first one we're going to look at is the fact that God is limitless. Okay, God is limitless. So when, when Hannah says there is none besides you, so in this culture, she knew that there were lots of other gods being worshipped in the surrounding cultures, so people would have these household bales, and these bales, they were limited to the household. So this bale would watch over you, protect you in your house, but if you were to travel to a distant land, you can't count on that god to protect you. Or there were, there were gods of the ocean, gods of the wind, gods of the sun, but all these gods were limited within their domain. But Hannah knew that the god that had saved her and redeemed her, the god who she was following, was completely limitless. And I think this is one of the first places where we tend to misjudge God and make him a small God. And so there's a great Bible teacher 
named Jen Wilkin, and she pulls this out in her book. Uh, it's called None Like Him. It's a good book. I commend it to you. And so she says, I think one of the reasons why we tend to limit God and make him small is because, especially in the West, we love to measure things, right? So even when Kelsey and I uh, had Titus, the first thing they did with Titus was they put him on a scale. They measured him, okay? And I will remind him of that when he gets older, that he is not God, because he was measurable, right? Uh, they measured his length every time we take him into the pediatricians. They, they measure him, okay? So we measure people in that way. We measure politicians, right, by how many people vote for them. We measure our security by comparing our student debt to our savings account. We measure our self-worth. I wish this wasn't so true, but by how many people like the post that we put on social media. We take the measure of people all the time, right? When we meet somebody, we immediately are measuring their character. Are you worth spending time with or not? We love to measure things. In many ways, this is good because it's, I mean, led to wonders like modern medicine. But the problem is, is we take this approach of loving to measure things, and we try to apply it to a limitless God. But God can't be measured. His greatness is unsearchable, Psalm 145. Okay, the highest of heavens can't contain you, much less this house that I have built for you, 1 Kings chapter 8. Who can measure the spirit of the Lord? Isaiah chapter 40. God's limitless. He's limitless in his power. He's limitless in his justice. He's limitless in his splendor. He's limitless in his trustworthiness. And so as a, as a quick application here is just think about how often do you become anxious, angry, frustrated because you as a limited being try to act in an unlimited way in the way that only God can, right? Where you expect your wisdom to be boundless or your abilities to be limitless. God is the only limitless entity in the universe. Or think about frustration with relationships that you have, okay? Do you expect a romantic partner or a spouse or a friend to be limitless. It is why a lot of relationships fall apart because people put the weight of deity on the other and expect them to be loving and trustworthy in the way that only God can be. Okay, but you're, you're actually supposed to find freedom in your limited nature by just giving your whole life to a limitless God. Okay, so that, that's the first thing. God is limitless. Next, God is holy. Right? Hannah says, there is none holy like the Lord. And one way to define holiness is the sum of all moral excellency. Okay, so holiness is it's the ultimate um, purity. It's the antithesis of moral blemish or defilement. Okay, God, God is morally spotless in, in, in all that he is. And so what this means is that the more you get to know God... It's like every time you spend time with him, every, every time you trust him in something, you open more doors into how good he is, which is, it's actually the exact opposite of often how it works with people, right? So like you meet a person, and if it's a particularly wonderful person, you know, you, you think they're, they're holy in a lot of ways. Like you've met a, a paragon of moral excellency, and often you want to pursue this person, either to become your spouse or to become a good friend of yours. And so in the beginning, it's like they can't mess up, right? So they, they listen at all the right moments. They speak at all the right moments. They have their life together. They're, they're wise. But then what happens? Right, the more you spend time with a person, 
Okay, first it's uh, they don't text you back for 48 hours and that irritates you. Then they say something insensitive. And then they fail you. Okay, again and again and again. But God's the exact opposite of that. I mean, his, his holiness is so dazzling, it's blinding, the scriptures tell us. And so be, because God is so good, here's what this means. First, because he's so good, this explains hell. And Americans don't like to talk about this aspect of the love of God, but hell is a result of God's goodness, not his evil or his vindictiveness, which is impossible for God to have, right? Because a, a judge is not good if before them is a person who clearly has wielded power over others to abuse them, and the judge lets them go, right? That's not a good judge, okay? The reason why God punishes wickedness is because he's good, but also God in his goodness sends himself in the person of Jesus Christ, right? So that if you are trusting in Jesus, on the cross, Jesus takes everything, all the punishment you deserve for throwing God off the throne of your life, for trying to be Lord of your own life, for not loving others as you should, and gives you all the reward that he earned because God is so good. When we look at the goodness of God, we have to look at it, you know, in totality, but here's another reason why his, why his goodness matters is, and the fact that he's unlimited in his goodness. So all the parts about you that you may not like are no match for his mercy and grace and goodness. Okay, Romans 5.20 says where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Your, your pains and tears and, and sorrows, they can be counted. Okay, Psalm 56 says so. It says, you've kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? But God's ability to comfort you is unlimited. And so first, we talk about God's grace abounds all the more where your sin increases. If, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, well, I did this in the past or I'm locked in this pattern right now. I'm not really worthy of God's love. God in his word is calling you a liar. Okay, because what you're saying is what I've done is more powerful than the cross an empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Okay, your, your sin is no match for his mercy. Anything you've done is no match for his unlimited grace. And it's, it's not like God is only just able to forgive you and cleanse you and heal you, but because also of, of Jesus Christ, who's your sympathetic high priest, he actually sympathizes with you in your weakness and in your frailty. So when you are united to this limitless God, he's not just powerful to heal you, but he sympathizes with you. There, there is no God more loving, there is no God more able, there is no God more sympathetic than the God of the Bible. Because he's so good. There is none holy like the Lord. Next, God is, he's self-sufficient. 
he's self-sufficient, meaning he's not contingent on anything. So this is an important binary that you and I always have to remember. God's creator, you and I created. Jen Wilkin in her book, she, she points out, if you were to make two lists, one of everything that was not created in the world and everything that was created in the world would actually be a very easy and short list to make. Uncreated God created everything else. Okay, God, God's not contingent. Like, you, you and I are contingent on so many things, right? We're contingent on time. We're contingent on space. We're like bundles of needs, right? We, we need food. We need security. We need affection. But God is completely self, he's, he's self-sufficient in and of himself, right? Not even just his ability to exist, but even in, in, in his love for himself. We're from all eternity, the eternal father loving the eternal son who eternally loves the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. God is utterly self-sufficient. And so here, here's what this means. I mean, first, gaze at it. It's, it's amazing. But number two, a couple impl- incredible implications of this is especially these two are appropriate to our Western climate. So the first one is we often view dependence as a flaw. Okay, because, because autonomy is often so, so valorized. But you, you are meant to be not self-sufficient. Okay, you, you are meant to depend on God. You were made as a, even before the fall, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were limited beings meant to depend on God. And so part of maturing as a Christian is becoming more dependent, not more autonomous. Okay, so that's dependent on God in prayer. That's dependent on the body of believers that God has placed for you in your local church. The more dependence you, you, you have on God and on the believers around you in your life, the more you're living according to the design with which God made you. Okay, so that, that's first. But, but secondly, and this is one of the most powerful things for me as I was looking at this, when you think about how God is self-sufficient, this gives a very different take on what it means to have it all. That's one of the most, right, one of the most pervasive lies in our culture is that you can have it all, right? You should have the career of your dreams. You should have the romance of your dreams. You should have the life experiences of your dreams. In large part, we do this because we're not God, but we want to be God. And so how we go about trying to be self-sufficient is amassing all of these things for ourselves. Right, a mass romance for herself, a mass career success for herself, a mass travel and money for herself. Now, God wants you to have it all, but the key is having it all doesn't come from you. It comes from having him who has it all. So after, um, after the, the sermon today, the, the song that we're going to sing is called, uh, there's a song we're going to sing called Oceans. And it says, when oceans rise, I will rest in your embrace for I am yours and you are mine. I am yours and you are mine. And our worship team does, does a wonderful job at choosing songs that come from Scripture. And what this truth is expressing is what God says all throughout Scripture is, when you trust in Jesus, you enter into covenant with me, which means I belong to you and you belong to me, which means our sorrows belong to him, our pain belongs to him, but also everything that is his belongs to us. So, when you think about having it all, and you're trusting in Jesus, and all that God is belongs to you, it means his power is the solution to your weakness. Okay? It means his eternality is the solution to your frailty. 
It means his moral perfection is the, is the solution to all the places you're flawed and you've screwed up. Okay, his strength is the solution to your weakness. Okay, so having it all doesn't come from amassing everything that you can outside of God. It comes from having God who has it all. I promise you there will be a lot more, more poise and equanimity and groundedness in your life if you drill that into your being. Okay, so just one more area we'll look at. Okay, so God is completely holy. He's limitless. He's self-sufficient. Next, God's all-knowing. God, 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 he, he knows everything. He knows, he knows every law of physics. He knows every trajectory of every planet and every galaxy. He knows every emotion. He knows every feeling. He knows every relational dynamic. He knows you better than you know yourself. God, God's never surprised by you. You can't startle God. You can't fool God. You can't trick God. God's never, God can never say, oh, I never knew that before. God's never learning because learning implies change and God doesn't change. God knows everything. And so what's, a, what's an implication of this? I heard a pastor tell a story about how he, so he was up in Manhattan and he ran into a friend of his. And his friend was walking his little five-year-old son on the you know, busy streets of Manhattan. They got talking. And finally, he, he looks at the son and he says, you know, do you ever get nervous like walking around Manhattan? And the, the son goes, no. You know, why would I get nervous walking around the city? And the guy was like, well, you know, it's a lot more un- un- unpredictable and more chaotic than a lot of other areas, areas of the world. And, you know, like what, what, if, what if you get lost? What if you don't know where to go? And the son said, well, every time I go out into the city, I have my father's hand. And he knows the city. He knows where to go. And how much of just the despair or even just the, the irritation or, or frustration that you fall into comes from wanting knowledge that, that isn't yours to have. And you, you need to know this and you need to be able to do this. But what's more important, that, that you know all the facts or that you're able to do everything that needs to be done or the fact that you have the Father's hand That you have the Father who's promised to never leave you or forsake you. That's an amazing gift and promise that we have in this limitless, all-knowing God. Because we can trust Him with anything. God's limitless. He's holy. He's self-sufficient. He's all-knowing. And there, there are so many things we're not even touching on. His immutability, the fact that He doesn't change. His omnipotence, the fact that He's all-powerful. We've barely even stepped onto the shoreline of, of the ocean of who God is. As you, as you gaze at, at this great God, and I hope you are, I mean, one of the questions that you, you have to ask yourself is, I mean, how, do, how do I stand in the presence of such a great God? And so praise God for the fact that in his love, he sent his eternal son And Jesus Christ, in his love for you, while he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because it's on the cross where Jesus Christ, in his love for you, 
experience the unlimited justice and wrath of God poured out on all the sins of the world came on him. And in his resurrection offers you newness of life where when you trust in Jesus, you can be God's son. You can be God's daughter. Guys, if you hear anything, there, there is no relationship in your life, there is no friend or lover in your life, I don't care how good or wise they are, who has the compassion or ability to heal the deepest longings of your soul or give you the wisdom that you need on how to navigate all the vicissitudes of life. Okay, me as your pastor, so many times, I, I, I wish I had within me the, 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 the compassion to heal the pains in your heart. Okay, to be able to give you the wisdom to navigate everything that you need to in life. It's a good thing I don't, because then I'd be God. Okay, there, there is only one, there is only one who can. There's none like him. Okay, it, it's God who calls you. It's God who justifies you. It's God who takes your cold, dead, lifeless heart and breathes life and light and warmth into it. It's God who perseveres you. It's God who sanctifies you. It's God who holds you. It's God who glorifies you. And so your joy and your ability to make it in this life does not come on trying to like pull yourself together as you walk out of this door. It's, it's gazing at the promises of this unlimited God who, who's there's, with whom there's none like. And you, you hear his promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13. I did not call you to a holy calling because of your works, but because of my purpose and grace. 2 Timothy chapter 1. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. That's Jesus talking in, in John chapter 6. Those are all the same ways of saying... Your ability to persevere, your ability to be grounded and have joy do not depend on your strength or your might or your wisdom or your love for me or your commitment to me. But it depends on my strength and my might and my wisdom and my love for you and my commitment to you and my commitment to you is perfect. There's none like him. And when those promises are the most real thing to your gaze and your heart, that's when you, like Hannah, will say, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is none like him. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess just all the ways that we make you small, all the ways.